The reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. 
If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues but all things should be done decently and in order the word of the lord thank you abby let's pray heavenly father we praise you for the scripture and for your spirit who opens our eyes to the scripture Pray, Father, for this discussion that we would be edified, that you would be reigning supreme, and we'd walk out of this room closer to you and to one another. Amen. I don't know if you've received the emails. I got one from Dave Scheidler of a video. I never tell people what I'm going to call them out. Of church hunters. Anyone see the church hunter video? Uh, it's, may, it's, it's based on house hunters, so they're making fun of it. Or, and... Uh, you have a couple who are going to get married, and they're going to find a church, so they have like a church agent showing them around churches. It's really funny. I'd, I'd recommend it. Uh, it's, it's funny kind of because it's so close to what we probably do. Uh, none of you do that here. You're putting up with like metal chairs in this room. But um, they walk into First Baptist Church in whatever town they're in, and um, she says, you know, I don't really like the name. That doesn't, that's not one of my things, <laughs> um, as if it should be called like... Anyway, and then they, he says, you know, the pastor, they kind of walk into the sanctuary. It's empty. It's the middle of the week. They're looking around, and he says, uh, you know, the pastor just went untucked. And they both go, oh, good, oh, good. And, uh, and, and you know, he's somewhere between Olstein and Giglio in his dressing. So I thought, man, we're really in trouble with, with us here. It shows her kind of weighing the offering plate, you know, kind of like, yeah, this feels pretty good. Um, at one point, they're having the interview, and... and the guy, the agent, says to her, uh, you know, you scored really high on mercy, and so there's a really good mercy ministry for you. It'll be great for you, and I'll get you connected. And for you, and he looks at the man, uh, you scored really high on needs accountability. So <laughs> thankfully for you, there's a men's group. It's funny. Watch it. And the reason it's funny is we don't mean to be like this, but we really do evaluate church often like that. What's it doing for me? Right? Am I getting anything out of this? Is this meeting me where I am? And of course, on one hand, we have to, in our, in our culture, there's not just one church at Stillwater, like there wasn't Corinth. You have to find, you know, theologically where you are, etc. But often, I think we come with a very selfish attitude as Christians in general. And the Corinthians certainly did this. I want to remind you of where we are in this letter. Um, Paul is writing a, a letter to a messy congregation, but he loves them, and there's hope. And these are the good guys. What I mean is, they're showing up. 
They want to worship. They want to grow. But they're just messing up. Early in the letter, we hear that they have divisions. You know? So some of them are following one leader while the others are ignoring that group and going with a different leader. And, and, and there's conflict throughout. In chapter 11, Paul really gets into the corporate worship phase of the letter. And remember, uh, the, the Lord's Supper, they were really doing it selfishly. And they were kind of clustering off in cliques for the Lord's Supper. And then in 12 through 14, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And that the goal of the gifts of the Spirit are to build up the body. Chapter 13, sandwiched in between the two on spiritual gifts, talks about love. And in this passage, he says, pursue love. And that's an imperative. And so this morning, uh, I hope you'll see, it's a long chapter. And, and Abby, thank you uh, for reading it. I know it's especially hard considering some of those verses we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but Paul is longing to see this church pursuing love and longing to see the body being built up. So a question I want to ask you is, why do you come to church? How many, and don't do a show of hands, some of you will lie and some of you will falsely blame yourselves. How many of you really come thinking, I want to build up other people this morning? Most of us think, I need to be fed. That's like the best case scenario, right? Maybe the worst case scenario is I just don't want to feel guilty or I need something to do. But very often, I don't think most modern Christians think, I want to show up and build the body up. And yet, that's what Paul's commanding. Pursue love and build up the body. And so I've got two really broad points. And this is a very hard passage to preach, so more mercy, as my friend Eddie often says in his uh, text and email, I will ask for more mercy. If you have problems, let's talk about them. Uh, the two broad points are distractions and then... And then um, Order. We're going to really look at those two things. So Paul spends a lot of time on distractions. One of his biggest concerns is that people are coming for themselves and it leads to distraction. And he spends a lot of time on speaking in tongues. And that is a challenging thing. This is a very, probably the most prominent chapter in the Bible on speaking in tongues. Like, what does it look like today? What does it mean, speaking in tongues? And what Paul's main concern with, concern with this gift is that the person doing the speaking in tongues is often into themselves and not thinking about building up the body. And what he makes clear is if it's not being interpreted, then it's not helpful in a group setting. Right? He's not really dealing with private speaking in tongues. But let me ask you, in Acts, do you know where the tongues came from? Why did this, what did the tongues do? I think sometimes we think of the Spirit coming on us as being this kind of crazy thing, right? Uh, I have a friend who often will say, he doesn't come here so I can tell you, often will say, you know, do what the Spirit leads you, man. Um, some of you might not even know who I'm referring to. Um, and it's a great funny point, but then the reality is the Spirit is, is into order. He's not into just kind of everyone doing what they want. So when tongues show up in Acts, it's because now... You have all these languages coming into Jerusalem for this festival. They, don't they can't all understand the speakers. So the tongues become a way to communicate where the speaker doesn't necessarily know what they're saying, but the folks that are hearing it know. They hear their language. It's coherent. It brings order. And they leave understanding the gospel. In fact, you had the conversion of thousands that day. So Paul is saying what use in a public setting are tongues if no one can understand them. He compares it to lifeless instruments in verse 7. 
What point would it be to have the flute or the harp or the bugle in battle if the, if the hearers had no idea what was going on? <clears throat> okay. Everyone's waiting for that other part, but we're going to get there in a minute. Tongues are distracting. Why? One of the other things that Paul highlights in this passage, verse 13, is the need to have your mind engaged in worship. Verse 13, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I think, this is, I'm going to go out on a limb, I think Paul definitely values tongues. I don't think he's talking about a private prayer language. I think he's talking about the spiritual gift of tongues, the supernatural gift, to utter something the speaker doesn't know, and it's immediately interpreted in the context. I don't believe he's talking about some private thing because he says, if you think you speak in tongues, I speak more. And at first you're like, wow, how does he know that? Well, the word there for more doesn't necessarily mean quantity, but quality. And Paul is saying, I understand what I'm saying. Like, I speak the tongue and I interpret the tongue, which is what we all do <laughs> with English, most of us, right? And so maybe he has a private prayer language, I don't know. But I think he's really trying to emphasize to the Corinthians, uh, don't get so caught up in some euphoric experience that your brain is not even engaged in. Right? <clears throat> Worship includes your mind. Worship includes your body. Worship includes the entire body of Christ being lifted up. That's distracting. Um, the second distraction is in verse 34. Did anyone pick up on that? Anyone? No one? Okay, I can move on. <clears throat> He says in verse 34, the women should not keep silent in the churches. So I texted Abby this week. I said, Abby, will you, pre will you read the passage? I have two reasons. It's a full chapter, which is really long to preach after you've just spoken this whole chapter. And secondly, these verses are in it. Okay. The problem is, what if I'm wrong about my interpretation and I'm like going to get in trouble? Okay, so let me tell you what I believe is happening in this passage. The first thing I want to say is this. God likes women. He made them. Christianity in the Bible loves women. Um, when you hear about the patriarchs, you hear about their wives, and it's their offspring that's the biggest thing they do. And, and when you come to, in the Old Testament, you do have the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, but the only other named books are Ruth. And, and uh, oh, I just went blank on the next one. Esther. I was going to say it, and then my brain did this thing. Okay. So in the Old Testament, you have tons of women doing amazing things. Rahab the prostitute. It makes it available for the, the Israelites to even come in and take over Jericho. <clears throat> in the New Testament, Jesus has women, um, remember the woman with the glass alabaster and webs his feet? And he says there will, this woman's name or story will be pronounced everywhere the gospel is proclaimed. He comes to the death of Lazarus, and it's Mary who, when she comes out, he finally weeps, right? He loves women. In this letter already, Paul says, it's Chloe's people who've reported these things early on. He has this, there's a woman, a businesswoman, who he's listening to her reports and trusting them for much of this letter in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> in this very letter, chapter 11, we talked about head coverings. Paul says in verse 5 of 11, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. 
In verse 4, every man who, uh, or sorry. So the implication in verse 5 is, the wives who have their heads covered are praying and prophesying in church. However that works. Remember we talked about what was going on in Corinth was that in the head coverings was probably that they were trying to get their culture behind them, like away from them. They were walking in, and by taking the head covering off, they were acting one way in culture and trying to create almost a new culture in the midst of worship. And I didn't say this, but it was something I was wondering. Women often, Paul talks about this as well in 1 Corinthians, might have been married to an unbelieving man. And if that woman came to worship and took her head covering off, that would communicate to the body that I'm available. And so it's shedding cultural norms in order to practice Christianity that Paul has a problem with. Before I go back to our passage, I just want to remind you one more thing. In two weeks, we celebrate Easter, the resurrection. The very first people Jesus reveals his risenness to are women, right? And it's their testimony that goes and gets the disciples to come and see for themselves. I just want to make sure we don't read our bad cultural implications into this. At the same time, we don't want to completely reject what Paul really is saying. It's a tough thing to do. So what's, what do I think is happening? Um, I believe that in Corinth, going back to the head covering thing, that the women, for whatever reason, and men too, are behaving differently than the other churches. That's why he says this is in all the churches of the saints. Some people, scholars, want to put that with verse 33. But most want to put that with verse 34, as the reading did this morning. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent. In other words, Paul's saying, everyone else gets this. Why not in Corinth? What are they, what, what are they not getting? <clears throat> Here's the, this is tricky. Here's what I think is going on. I think there were a group of women in that culture, in, that, in worship, who would ask questions and interrupt worship with questions. And that's why I think Paul says, you know, if you have questions, ask your husband at home. And that sounds so hard for some of you. For others, it makes total sense. But he's also, I think, at the same time where he's telling the women, ask your husband, it's also implicating the men, too. Husbands, are you leading your homes? Are you creating an environment at home where your wife feels led and where they're learning Scripture from you? so that when you go to this setting, they aren't interrupting constantly. And I still think it's a cultural issue because men in that culture were educated, and unfortunately at the time women weren't, and men probably also have had their reputations on the line and would not ask questions for fear of being, you know, this is dumb, I'm going to hold it in. Men have this prideful thing. I think the women were asking questions but derailing conversations. And so, more than likely, that's what's going on because they are allowed to preach, or excuse me, prophesy and pray publicly, but this word speak seems to imply that they were doing something different that was interrupting. No one does that here, which is great, right? So it's awesome, thank you. Um, If you did, I would say, guys and girls, quit interrupting me with your questions. Does that make sense? So men need to be, now, I'm going to say one last thing about men leading their family. Do you remember that Norman Rockwell painting where <clears throat> there's a chair and the guy is in his pajamas and he's slouched and he's got the Sunday paper and a cigarette and behind him is his family, the wife, the mom, and the three little kids dressed perfectly heading to church. Anyone see that painting? Well, it looks like I just described it. 
And it's, the obvious implication is this. Oftentimes, it's the man who fails to lead spiritually. So, it's very easy to say women don't speak. But the problem is, in our culture, in our, in our sins of gender maybe, you would even say, men often are silent like Adam was in the garden. And so, men need to lead families. Not in any harsh way, in a loving, caring way that encourages the wives and the male men learning together scripture and worship and in fellowship and teaching the children together, but in such a way that there's a mutual respectability and that men are going to church. I heard a statistic. I didn't look it up, so if I'm wrong, you can tell me. It's like the frog that melts in water. That's not true. This one I hope is true. But when a man, when the father is a Christian and goes to church and leads his family, the percentage of the child growing up and walking with Christ is far greater than when just the mom believes. And so often we leave the spirituality up to the moms because women really are strong. And women really do. Think of Hannah in 1 Samuel and praying for a child and delivering Samuel to Eli. And of course Mary, I believe you went through that in the, in the Sunday school this morning, and her ability to love and nurture and at the end of Jesus' life she was the one following him and was accompanying to the grave uh, with Mary Magdalene. So women, we love you. I was very uncomfortable. Just don't stand up and interrupt. Boys or girls, by the way. It goes across the board. Okay. Those are distractions. The, the, why I did the entire chapter together is that Paul ends the whole thing in verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order that's the Presbyterian, that should be our motto, right? Decency and in order. But for the building up, and so what I want to spend the rest of our time on is instead of having distractions at worship, um, let's have order, let's have coherence. And that's what Paul's really getting at. When the, group, when the body comes together, the goal is to build up the body, okay? Look at verse 14, or verse 1 of 14, chapter 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. <clears throat> Paul is, the, the, both are imperatives, but pursue is much stronger than desire. Even though you're to earnestly desire the spiritual gift, you're to pursue love. Like that's to be your passion. So when you come to worship, that should be what informs you. And then in verse 2, Paul says, or excuse me, at the end of verse 1, he says, desire prophecy. Okay? That, is that your desire? How many of you have prayed this morning to come in and prophesy? Um, maybe we don't do that, and that spiritual gift is un, un, it's hard to grasp. Let me try to uh, unpack it a little bit. The primary idea is prophecy is delivering a message from God, supernaturally given, but not necessarily spontaneous. So that the person who's delivering this message, maybe it was throughout the week that the Lord delivered it. And they would come and they would deliver. But one thing we know from this passage, uh, if you look at verse 29... Uh, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said, is that it's measurable. You could weigh it. In other words, it has to conform to Scripture. Remember in Acts, the Bereans were taking everything <clears throat> that was being said and looking in the Scriptures to make sure it conformed. But the idea for Paul is building up through knowledge, through understanding, through insight matters more <clears throat> than speaking an unintelligible tongue that no one understands. But it's coherent. <clears throat> so the question I have <clears throat> is, goodness gracious, I need some water. 
I want to be coherent. <coughs> Excuse me. That goes down as the most awkward moment at Grace Presbyterian Church. So when you think of corporate worship and we think of building up and coherency, um, it, it feels different what we do here on a Sunday morning than what the culture does, right? It feels like this is kind of archaic, and I want to unpack the archaicness a little bit. But let me first of all tell you it's not as weird as you think. We have two things that everyone in this room does often that really image church, sporting events and concerts, right? I'm not a concert guy. Um, I would, the one concert I really thought I would love to go to is the YouTube uh, Rattle and Hum, what's it called? The new Joshua Tree? Oh, that'd be awesome. Or Taylor Swift. <laughs> but, you know, you have an album where the musician has given you a perfect rendition, and it's like in your phone, or it's being streamed nowadays. And we have that anywhere we are, and, wanna, and now it's like, or you can pay like $400, go probably at best Tulsa or Oklahoma City, but probably Dallas, and you don't like your seat, you know, and you really can't see the band, but it's going to be great. Why, why do we do this? Well, when you get there, and I've only been to a couple of concerts, James Taylor, who I really love, you get there, and it's like all of a sudden you realize this, this band is present. Like they're in the midst. All day today, this, has been what, this is their high today performing for us. But would it be good to show up to that concert and find out you're all alone? I've heard people say, hey, so-and-so got to have, so, you know, Bruce Springsteen all by themselves. That would be horrible. Like, it's like, this would be kind of weird. They're singing, and you're like, you know. <laughs> what makes the concert great is the guy and the, the people next to you, and you're like, I don't know you, but somewhere in our life, we both agreed that that was a good song and a great band. And right now, we're experiencing it together. It's wonderful. You know, we're swaying and you're lighting candles. There's something in human nature that wants to come together for worship, right? A more uh, obvious example, C.S. Lewis, I've, I've used this before. When one, the, he had a group of three that would meet. I don't believe this was the Inklings. Correct me if I'm wrong. A separate group. But one of the men died. And he thought, well, at least when I get together with this other man, I'll get to know him better. Because uh, the third person probably took away from our knowledge of each other. And he found out he actually knew this, this person less. Because the third person who had passed away um, had brought something out of the, the second man that C.S. Lewis himself couldn't quite bring out. And so there's something about corporate worship, whether it's maybe a concert, which isn't really corporate worship, it's just a concert, but in a setting like this, we are worshiping God and we're doing it together. And it brings something out in God that you can't experience by yourself. So corporate worship is important. And I want to just uh, point out some place, places in the scripture, in this passage, where Paul really is striking that chord. Look at verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. First principle, you have to come. You may not ever come again after that awkward moment. But it's ideal when you're here. For example, going back to the prophecy, if you are actually thinking throughout the week, Lord, I want to contribute on Sunday. Well, the underlying thought is I'm going to be there. I'm going to actually show up and contribute. But it's not just coming in. I, I'm, 
I'm going to be mean for just a minute. It's going to sound legalistic. Saturdays can be really hard as the pastor because I'm thinking, this is all fun what we're doing as a family, but I've got to preach tomorrow. It's like always in my mind. And the, an illustration I thought of that kind of comforted me was, hey, pro golfers who are like in the lead, like on a Sunday night, Saturday night, I've always watched these interviews, and what do you do to kind of stay calm? And I bet they have a really tough time enjoying themselves, right, before that first that round the next day, right? So the pastor, I'm a pro golfer. But then I thought, I bet like when Augusta comes down and we're having uh, the, the Masters show up in a couple next weekend, I bet it's not just the leader Saturday night that's nervous, right? I, like, I bet the guy's carrying the cameras, running around the fairways with the cord. You know, the guy carrying the cord and moving it around. They're nervous because they've got to show up on time, and this is a big gig, and if they mess up a, a shot, right? And the announcer guys, they're nervous. They've got to get the names right and have some backstory. In other words, everybody is thinking about the event together. So, are you thinking about corporate worship on Saturday? Or does it kind of dawn on you about 9.45 on Sunday morning, like the alarm's going off, bedhead. Ah, I'm going to corporate worship. Is that the first time it crosses your mind? Maybe 9.30 for some of you? Okay, that's my uh, punch in the gut. If you are participating and you're bringing yourself and your preparation, that helps the body, right? So for all these people in Corinth, they're bringing things to worship, and so are you. That's why we have an interacting worship. That's why it's not just the music and the, and the speaker, everybody's standing up and, and expressing themselves and getting involved, okay? Now, here's the good news. Uh, here's my CrossFit illustration for the week. Uh, one thing I like about CrossFit, circle R, Mark and Rhonda, um, is I don't have to plan my workout. And I, don't, I just show up. Although I avoided one workout for the first time ever because of what I read online. But that's another story. And then they change it. That's another story. You just show up, and it's all planned for you. It really is. It's like, here's how we're going to warm up. Okay, go do that. Okay, and you just do what they say to do, and you're doing it with a group. And then we do this thing to stretch. And then we have the real hard workout. But the point is, I don't have to plan it anymore, and that really is awesome. And I also, can, if I can just get myself there, it's going to be okay. So for those of you that wake up at 9.30 with your bed head, and, and all you can do is just show up, we love you, come, We'll have it all taken care of. And then maybe in a few weeks, you know, we'll work on getting up earlier. So worship is for all of us to participate, right? It's coherent. It, it's, it's informative. And we're all participating. Um, do, you, do you kind of understand what we're doing when we come together, like a call to worship? Um, I was thinking about this this morning. I want you to kind of understand why we do the elements we do. Moses is wandering through a wilderness, and a, and a bush just sets on fire. He didn't plan that. He didn't ask for that. And it was God basically saying, Moses, I'm calling to me, myself a people who will worship me. Come. And Moses was the leader of that. God is the one that initiated the worship. At, you know, when he gives the Ten Commandments at Sinai, he says, I am the Lord your God. I brought you up out of Egypt. I rescued you. I initiated this. So when we show up and I say, let's have this call to worship, it does, it's not just this idea we kind of made up. The Bible teaches that God has called you here for worship. He loves you. He knows you by name. And he brought you into this room. 
right? And we praise God. We have these songs of praises. And then we have this confession of sin. And we talk about this every week. This is our chance to participate in worship by confessing the fact that our default is to run from God. But that's not okay, but it is okay because of God's grace and mercy, right? So we confess that together, and it's wonderful. And then we have this assurance of pardon. We have a tithe. The tithe is your chance to actually bring the produce of your hands before God. Please see it that way. That God is supernaturally present in, in, in embracing each of these elements of worship. The, the, the pastoral prayer. Dave this morning went through the names of the people in our congregation who are hurting. And that's what we seek to do, to think about who you are and how you, how you are doing and pray for you individually. When we come to the sermon, of course, it's a lesson that Paul talks about that hopefully I've worked through during the week and prayed through and struggled through. And, the, and it's in the context of the worship service that you grasp it. I want to give one illustration. I'm going to call Tina out. She's like, what? One day early on, I preached a sermon, and my wife and even maybe Doug were like, hey, did you feel like the Spirit kind of moved in that sermon? I was like, yeah, I just felt, yeah, not unlike today. No, I'm kidding. Sorry. That one went really well. But it wasn't the quality of the sermon. It just the group. And some of the uh, women's Bible say they were talking about it, and Tina had missed that sermon. And so she went back and listened to it, and she I didn't, I didn't hear that. Now, Tina likes my preaching. We're friends. But the point is, I, and I remember hearing that and thinking, that's because truly grasping a sermon is hard to do driving down the road at 80 when you haven't had a worship service. You can. Listen to Keller. He's awesome. But when you're here in the context of this service, I think it builds up and you understand it better. And you're participating even in the sermon, as hard as that may seem. And then we have a confession of faith. I, I can't convey enough that we have this these words that we say together that connect us to generations from, all, from thousands of years. It's saying, here's what we actually believe. and we, we trust this confession, right? We participate in this together and it's orderly. So, that's what we're doing at Corporate Worship. Last night we watched the movie Risen, uh, and I recommend it if your children are probably 12 or older. Uh, it's a little, has some, it's pretty intense. But it's the crucifixion story told from the perspective of a Roman guard. I'm going to give a spoiler. So, well, we kind of know the story, right? Um, this guy's job by Pontius Pilate, was he, Pontius Pilate had this guy track down the body, right? Like, where did, where did Jesus' body go? And as he's interviewing and going through the process, it takes him to Galilee to where the, the men, uh, the disciples, men and women, are in the upper room and he comes up to that room, and he, and he had seen Jesus' face on the cross, and he walks in this room, and he sees him sitting in the room, having risen from the, from the grave. And he just, he just backs away, and his body, he just melts. And he's converted in that process. And it's a beautiful story, but what you find with these disciples is they're, they're giddy. Like they become overwhelmed that Jesus is back and he's in their presence and they're, you know, it shows Thomas won't run in and feel his wounds and, and they're excited and when Jesus disappears during those, those days he would kind of show up and, and disappear they were still excited they still had an energy about them 
when they were together, Jesus was there. Does that make sense? We are coming on Easter. Next, the next passage, Paul's going to say, do you believe in the resurrection? And I would say our, one of our best ways of understanding it is the way we come into corporate worship. Does this move you? Does this change you? Um, wow. Lots of illustrations. One last one. Years ago, I've only been a pastor for three years. I know it's, you're like painfully aware of that right now. Like, yeah, we get it. But for like 20 years, I was a Christian who went to church every week. And I remember at one point in our marriage, uh, maybe from traveling, we'd missed two weeks of church. Not a big deal, but uh, something, we were just, I don't know if we were arguing or things didn't seem right. We were talking about it. And we both were like, I just don't feel. And we realized, I haven't been at worship for two weeks. I just feel different. And I, I hope you all, when you're here, it, it's like a meal. You don't notice it. It's great. It nourishes you. It's when you miss it, I think, that it begins to be clear, like, I need to be with the body of Christ. I need to take the Lord's Supper, to fellowship, to come together regularly, to come in and be a part of this. And so, Paul is urging us, in view of God's mercy, in view of the love of Christ, in view of the Spirit bringing love on you, have your hearts bent on building up this body by being involved, by caring for one another, praying for one another, getting involved in each other's lives. For his glory. So, does that make sense? That's my that's the one of the most awkward sermons ever. It's like a lecture. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, and you are in our midst. And we are all contributing through singing and, and confessing the, the confessions together, fellowshipping in between um, our time of worship getting involved in each other's lives as we leave here and asking how each other is doing and praying for one another and supporting one another. Father, unbelievers come in and hopefully hear the gospel and want to know you and want to experience you like these friends experience you. Lord, you are a God who is orderly, and we praise you for coherent worship. We praise you that we can understand the words. Our minds and hearts are engaged and we can walk closer with you. Lord, we praise you that sometimes it doesn't feel amazing, but it is still nonetheless feeding us like a meal. And I pray we would see it that way. Father, as we move toward the Lord's Supper, I pray we would see your gracious provision of redemption, sending your Son to die for us, Lord. We long to see him face to face. But in the meantime, you've provided your Holy Spirit as our counselor, who pours out chiefly his love and love into our hearts, your love, that we would love one another. The Spirit convinces us of our union with you, and this meal is one opportunity for that. We pray that we would see as we taste these elements that you are not only good, but you dwell in us and have secured our salvation for all of time. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.